0: Hey guys, it's Crystal and Alita and today on Girl, We Need to Talk About Fiction, Alita is going to give me a tale, a description, a summary of this awesome book that I have read articles about but I have never read. It's Casey Sepp's book and it's called The Furious
1: Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Harper Lee. Yes. So I am a huge fan of Harper Lee. I read To Kill a Mockingbird in Miss Slade's 10th grade honors English class, and I fell in love with her writing. I'm also a huge fan of Truman Capote. In Miss Barnes' class my senior year, I read In Cold Blood.
0: Can I just say, again, we are so thankful and appreciative for our teachers in high school. Yes. Because they really put an effort into making sure we had exposure to the classics and just gave us a better perspective, I guess,
1: of what was out there. Absolutely. And I, I honestly feel for kids these days because
0: I feel like they don't have that same opportunity as much. Yes. I've spoken to other people who went to different schools and the school that we went to. Yeah. And yeah, not everyone gets a chance to read some of the literature that we were able to read and I just think that's so important. It is. And it always blows my mind when people don't get that exposure. Yeah. So thank and you we to were our tr- teachers. Yes.
1: Thank you. Huge shout out to Miss Barnes and Miss Slade too. They were some of my favorites mm-hmm. in school. So a few years back, while waiting on guests to arrive at a party at the river, I broke out my Southern Living magazine mm-hmm. and they had an article about Monroeville, Alabama which was Harper Lee's hometown and Truman Capote spent years during his childhood there as well visiting distant relatives because they were friends You're going to get into that. I am. Okay. So, actually, they lived next door to each other. When Truman was visiting. Was visiting. visiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His relatives lived right next door to Harper Lee. Harper Lee kind of fashioned her character, Dill, after Truman Capote. Truman
0: Capote in... And so, that was in To Kill a Mockingbird. In To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think I remember reading that before, but you just confirmed that fact that she fashioned Dill after Capote. That is really cool. Of course, after reading this article, we had to go. Of course.
1: You know. While we were there, we actually went to the, it's no longer there, but we went to the location of the two homes mm-hmm. and all they really have is like a placard monument type thing on both of the lots. So there's no homes there. Mm-mm. There's no houses. Nope. There's only a little rock wall that used to separate the two mm-hmm. yards. They had to steal a rock oh. from that, you know, just to say I had something. Is that <laughs> illegal? Maybe, you know. <laughs>
0: Don't tell anybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it was such a neat little town. And we've since gone back. And so some of the places are no longer there. But the first time we went, we went to Boo
0: Radley's Grill. Which if you're familiar with To Kill a Mockingbird, is you know pretty cool. Boo yeah. Radley is. It's, That's crazy that it's not there anymore. Yeah, it's they sad. had closed down the last
1: time that we went. Oh. But they have the courthouse set up there. Now it's more like a museum to both of the authors. So is it a still is it still a functioning courthouse?
0: No. No, okay, so it's no, just it's like a museum. No, it's just a museum Oh, now. okay,
1: cool. But yeah, we took pictures and everything. It was really neat. And also the town has a ton of murals on the sides of buildings that depict different scenes from To Kill a Mockingbird. That is so neat. Yeah. Also, I want to mention that you know, we know of Harper Lee's work in To Kill a Mockingbird, but actually she was instrumental also in Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. She went with him and helped research and interview people for that book. For that book.
0: Mm-hmm. Didn't they make a movie about Truman Capote? Yes. They, they did. They made a movie with him, with his research for In Cold Blood, right? They did. It's called Capote.
1: Yep. And it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman, Mm -hmm. who I'm a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. And if you see, okay, so Truman Capote had an extremely odd voice. It was very effeminate. It was very high-pitched. And also, I think that's why he did so well interviewing with Having Harper Lee there she was more down-to-earth and more like the people I believe in cold blood was based on like a true crime that happened in right. Kansas maybe it was one of like the Midwest states. yeah it's a little it's a little fuzzy because it's been a long time yeah um, I, for some reason I'm thinking Kansas but I do know it was like a Midwest town that it happened in but I think he did well interviewing and I, the movie kind of shows this too. having Harper Lee there because she was more down-to-earth whereas Truman He had been in New York for a long time and kind of had that aura about him. Right. So like maybe not as approachable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But he had an extremely high-pitched voice and Mm -hmm. it was very distinctive. Mm -hmm. And so Philip Seymour Hoffman did an amazing job recreating Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I think that he actually won an Oscar for that.
0: We'll have to look it up. Yeah, And we'll definitely have to go into that further maybe for another episode yeah. And I think the actual Truman Capote was in a few films before he passed away. I think. I'm pretty sure. It may have been. Yeah. Um, now, other things that
1: he was involved in were um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh. Yeah. I did
0: not know that. Yeah. I just watched that for the first time this past year and was just blown away. I've seen clips of it. I've seen it like in passing. I'll have it mm-hmm. on, and but I've never watched the full movie. Yeah. So I really need to do that. You do. It was, it was excellent. But
1: yeah, I want to say he actually wrote the, wrote the play for that. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. But I know that he was behind something involving that. We'll definitely have to research. Yeah. So last year when I was looking for books to take with me to the beach, I stumbled across Casey Sepp's book and I was instantly intrigued by the title because it mentions Harper Lee. And so the story has three basic parts. The first part really focuses on the crimes and on Reverend Willie Maxwell. The second part focuses around the attorney who had the Reverend as a client mm-hmm. through a majority of these crimes. And then the third is about Harper Lee. Okay. And her research
0: for her unpublished work, really. Right, because she never finished the book she was working on. No, and more about that later. Okay.
1: But today, I'm really just going to focus on telling you the story about the reverend. The rest you can really read yourself, but it was a fascinating story I'd never heard before. Sepp gives you a little bit of history of the area by telling the story of how Lake Martin came to be. Now, I won't go into all of that, but to give you an idea of where the story and crimes take place, It's near the top of Lake Martin in Alabama, which is near Alexander City. Okay. So, Alexander City is really at the north part of Lake Martin. And some people might be more familiar with Wetumpka, which now has like a large casino, which I've actually been to with my great aunt. But that's at the south part of Lake Martin.
0: Did you win any money? No. Oh,
1: No, I lost my $25 in like an hour. But she enjoyed it. We sprung her out of the assisted living room took
0: her took her to the casino.
1: Awesome. But she enjoyed it. That's awesome. Seth also gives a little bit of history about life insurance. Yeah, talking about money. Yeah, talking about money. (laughs) I had no idea about though. And that kind of will play a huge role in the story. Even as far back as the Roman Empire, they had burial societies. And they were more like clubs where you paid a fee to join and then you paid like, I don't know if it was monthly or quarterly or whatever, but you paid a fee every so often to remain in that burial society. Mm -hmm. And so when the person died, they covered that cost. There were also organizations that handled raising money to help widows and orphans with the cost of a burial. That's interesting. I never knew that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes churches, like church organizations organizations would really help with that as well kind of their thing yeah Yeah. but it took two major events for life insurance to really morph into what it was today and I had heard about one of these but I really hadn't heard about the second but the first was the Great Fire of London in 1666 and a bakery I think it was on like Pudding Lane or something but a bakery caught fire and in the aftermath it left nearly a hundred thousand homeless and thirteen thousand structures were burned to the ground.
0: Fire destroys all. Fire was always the the catastrophic. It was, thing. yeah. It was, and also you know
1: back then they had homes that were actually kind of close together. So when one caught fire, right. the other one it caught fire. It was so and the easy. Yeah. But so okay, this is really when home insurance came into play there was a man and i can't think of his name it mentions it in the book but he kind of took this opportunity to really start doing home insurance like fire oh, insurance. Okay. Okay. So he was like pretty smart. I think he was a doctor turned insurance man. And I've heard about this too in Charleston when we visited. They mentioned this as well. And it struck me when I read this, I thought back to that trip and I'm like, Oh, I remember them talking about this in Charleston too, because Charleston had a big fire. So after this, the great fire of London, they would put like little placards on the house Mm -hmm. if the house was insured. And so this man had like people who would go out and fight fires, but they would only really fight the fires of the homes that were insured. Oh. Yeah. So it was kind of shady. It yeah. Was, it was not good. But yeah, that's when really like home insurance started to be what it is today. Mm-hmm. And then the second major event was in 1755 when Lisbon was hit by an earthquake that lasted six minutes according to records. And which I can't imagine. But at that time, all of the water rescinded in the harbor. Mm. And so people went out to look at the lack oh, of God. water. And about that time, a tsunami came through. and. And it killed thousands more mm-hmm. so actually tens of thousands died that day between the earthquake and the tsunami
0: oh man that's terrible
1: yeah you know that's those are the two events that really led to home insurance and life insurance does she go into this in the book Is she this, does oh okay cool yeah so it's really interesting to me because I, I hadn't realized this it took a lot longer for it to come to America of course it did yeah because we're, <laughs> we're we're slow moving apparently <laughs> so america really didn't see life insurance until the civil war that
0: kind of makes sense i guess because people going off to war and not knowing if they'll come back and then being left at home with no no provider that exactly sort
1: of yeah yeah so that made sense to me but mm-hmm. i was really surprised that it hadn't happened prior to gotcha something else to note and this comes into play a lot with our story even as late as the 1970s you could take out insurance life insurance on someone without their
0: knowledge at all so that is creepy <laughs> and terrifying yes as late as the 1970s yes people could just take out a policy on you hmm and it, you wouldn't have to sign anything No, nope. just terrifying terrifying yeah yes it's
1: creepy Okay, so speaking of that creepiness, let's go on to Reverend Willie Maxwell.
0: Okay, so this, so I just want to clarify, these are real people that we're going to talk about that Harper Lee was researching at the time for her book. Okay. Yep, this is a real story. Okay. Which adds to the creepiness, y'all. Yep. So
1: Reverend Willie Maxwell. He was born dirt poor to tenant farmers, which I had never heard
0: of that term. Like I've heard of sharecroppers, not tenant farmers. So that was you pay to be on the like you pay rent, right? Yeah, to be on the really land. It really is the and, same thing, right? But like
1: I just never heard the term tenant farmers. I've okay. always heard sharecroppers, mm-hmm. and so they were dirt poor. Um, a lot of times they said, you know, they had already spent the money for their crops. Prior to it even coming out of the ground. Right. So they, they had really no money to live on. Right. It was kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah. So he really, Willie Maxwell only had about seven years of education which circled around harvest times and stuff uh-huh. like that because when they were planting or when they were um, picking he was out of school. Right. Exactly. So he really only had seven years of education. He joined the military early served two periods in the military before being discharged in nineteen forty seven. He came back to Kellyton, which is the same town he was born in. And this is still in Alabama. It is. Okay. It's very close to Alexander City. Okay. A lot of these little villages were and they really were almost villages because mm-hmm. it was just very small population. But they are close to Alexander City, which is in the north part of the Lake Martin. Okay. Okay, he married Mary Lou Maxwell in 1949, Mm -hmm. and they really spent 21 years together. The author goes into, they weren't necessarily blissful years, Mm -hmm. because the reverend had several lady friends, and he even fathered a child, which he later legitimized at the courthouse. Oh, yeah. And that was towards the later, later years. Later yeah. years? So they had been married almost two decades by the time that he fathered this other child.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Hmm. It wasn't all blissful. No. So the night of August 3rd, 1970, Mary Lou was shelling peas. She hadn't wanted to go with the reverend over to his revival that he was preaching at. Like so many other preacher's wives, she didn't want to be watched and judged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they live in a fishbowl. Exactly.
0: I'm sure, you know, everybody knows his reputation by that point. It's 1970. If he was cheating on her in the later years of their marriage, sure, she didn't want to go and be looked at. Like, yeah, there's the cheating reverend's wife. (laughs) This is true. And the author really goes into
1: what she may have experienced, you know, other women watching what she was wearing, other women kind of judging like how she acted, that kind of thing. And that still happens today to to pastor's families. So she was wanting to avoid all that that night and she was perfectly content shelling peas. And so her sister had stopped by, and then she went out to talk to her neighbor, Dorcas Anderson. Mm-hmm. And then later she ran over to her other sister's house. But when she spoke with her neighbor, Dorcas, she mentioned that Willie had wanted her to keep the phone line open so that he could call on his way home that night. So I'm guessing he was going to call from a
0: payphone, didn't yeah. have cell
1: phones. Yeah. And because he was going to be driving so late at night. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't super far away, but, like, he wanted to let her know that he was on his way home. Okay. So, Willie's account of what happened that night was that he tried calling from the road and she never answered. And then when he came home, she wasn't home, and so he went to bed exhausted. And around 2 a.m., he woke up and realized she wasn't there. So then, at that time, he started calling around. Okay. Now Dorcas's account was a little bit different. She said that Mary Lou had came over a second time that night looking panicked, and had said that Willie had been in a car accident. That'll come into play in a minute. So when they located Mary Lou's car, it was parked on the side of the road, Her car was barely damaged and Mary Lou was in the car
0: dead. Oh my God. So what? So that doesn't really make sense. The neighbor said Mary Lou had come over and said that Willie had been in a car accident. But then they find Mary Lou's car after Willie has come home and she's dead she's dead and so did they have two cars was this like a shared car i'm kind of confused i believe they had two okay because the because the reverend
1: had taken the one okay over to the revival okay and see it also mentions that while he was gone to the revival she went and visited a friend so i'm assuming they had two cars okay so that night she had came out and told dorcas like her husband had been in a car accident she was gonna have to go see about him so she left in her car. Okay, gotcha. All yeah. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when they found her, she was she was lying dead like across the Across
0: front. the front seat. Yes,
1: across the front seat. And actually, the author goes into, I believe she was wearing a white dress with red polka dots. And you could hardly see the polka dots for all the blood. Oh. Mary Lou, though, hadn't died in a car accident. Although they had wanted, they wanted it to seem that way. Mm-hmm. Because the car was barely damaged. But Mary Lou had actually been beaten to death after someone had failed to strangle her with something like a rope. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, after Mary Lou's death, they began to find out that the marriage wasn't all sunshine and roses, though it had spanned over 20 years, like I had said before. Mm -hmm. He had had several lady friends, like I said, the one that he had the daughter with, and then one that lived down the road from them, he was paying for a car for her. Like, he was on the car note.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. Okay. Insane. So, the investigators started seeing that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Right. Come to find out, the Reverend had purchased a life insurance policy for Mary Lou shortly before her death. And after her death, he wrote a letter to the Old American Insurance Company letting them know that she had died in an automobile accident. However, he failed to mention that it had been ruled a homicide and he had actually been indicted for her murder. (laughs) Yeah. The letter was dated August 19th, 1970. So the night that Mary Lou died was August 3rd. So he didn't waste any time spending off that life insurance policy. Nope. That's like maybe a little over two weeks. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. The author said that he took care of some things because she had been a seamstress as well Mm -hmm. as working at the mill. So Mary Lou had two jobs. And actually, the day that she died, the Reverend had been let go from his job at the mill.
0: Hmm. That's something
1: else that yeah. is interesting. He had been let go from his job and she hadn't had a chance to even really talk to him about it because he had gone straight to the revival.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Okay. So not only was the reverend indicted, but actually one of his lady friends that they believed helped the reverend ambush his wife at the church nearby where her car was found.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. So both him and the woman that they think helped him, mm-hmm. they were both indicted. Okay. Yep. So Dorcas Anderson, the neighbor who had first mentioned that
1: Mary Lou came over saying the Reverend had been in an accident, later recanted all of what she had previously said. Her testimony in court was completely different than what her earlier testimony
0: was. So how does that, she just, nope, it's, it's totally different than what I said before. Heifer lied. Uh, okay. That's what had happened. Okay. So,
1: the Reverend was acquitted for Mary Lou's murder thanks to the help from his attorney, Tom Radney, mm. who also plays a crucial role in this whole story. Fifteen months after Mary Lou's death and four months after his acquittal, the Reverend took another wife, and you may recognize the name. It was Dorcas Anderson.
0: No. <laughs> okay that might be why her story was that explains why she changed her testimony all around in the weird story about the car because this just didn't make sense to me that oh she came over and told me that her husband was in a car accident then it turns out she's in a car accident like that just was fishy Mm -hmm. honestly i do think that the reverend called
1: mary lou that night this is my personal opinion i think the reverend did call mary lou that night to get her to go out so he could ambush oh my
0: gosh yes
1: and so i think that's why dorcas had said that i don't think that she was lying at the first part of it i think she was lying at the court testimony at the court testimony yeah oh which is like like i said that's how he got mary lou to go out that night okay so the reverend marries dorcas and actually, they have a child together in that After short... After they get married? Or... I think she was pregnant before. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Dorcas, like I said, had been the Reverend's neighbor. She was actually married to Abram Anderson, who had been diagnosed with ALS. And while they thought he had several more years to live, he ended up dying in 1971. Mm. Yeah, so there was speculation, but nothing substantial about the reverend's involvement in Abram's earlier than anticipated demise. It was after his death and after he married Dorcas that the rumors of him being a voodoo preacher began. Uh, Okay. Yeah, the town started to think of him as a voodoo preacher.
0: Interesting. Yes.
1: So the Reverend and Dorcas married in 1971 as well in Uh, November. Okay. So
0: her her husband husband died in 71, 71 and then they got married in the same year. Yes. Okay. Yep. And his insurance man came the very next day after they were married.
1: Yep. Why would she marry him, dude? I don't know. Okay. All right. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. (laughs) Shockingly enough, Dorcas was not his next victim. Okay. The Reverend had to bail his brother out of jail for drinking and driving. And I think his, his brother was kind of known as an alcoholic. Like this had, this had been a um, pretty consistent thing. And so he, the Reverend assured the court that he would have his brother back for his court date on February 7th, 1972. However, the day before his scheduled court date, he was found where highway 22 meets highway nine. His actual cause of death was a heart attack due to his overconsumption of alcohol. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that the blood alcohol level is .08. Yeah. Um, So his blood alcohol level was .41. Mm. And guess who was listed as the beneficiary on his life insurance? Oh, my (laughs) God. The
0: Reverend. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is starting to get crazy. Yes.
1: Oh, it's going to get more crazy, honey. Do you
0: think he, like, poisoned his brother? I think so.
1: I mean normal alcohol consumption or maybe he got him him to drink and just kept making him drink i don't know 0.41 is extremely high yeah so i i mean obviously it is since it killed the man yeah but yeah i don't know that that would be normal alcohol consumption hmm Yeah, but ironically enough, he was found on that road too. That's insane. (laughs) Yes. On September 20th, 1972, Dorcas Anderson supposedly left her three sons, the one she had with the Reverend Reverend. and then the two of hers. the previous marriage. Yeah, hers with Abram. She left to run to her mother's house in Alexander City to pick up fish. After an hour passed, the Reverend supposedly called his mother-in-law, who stated that she hadn't seen Dorcas. He then went and spoke to the neighbors. In my opinion probably to establish an alibi right yeah (laughs) neighbors seemed to play a part in this Uh uh-huh later three men drove up to the car idling on the side of the road lights on only a quarter of a mile from her house the men found Dorcas lying awkwardly in the front in the floorboard of the front seat the damage to the car was nothing worse than a fender bender and Dorcas had very few visible injuries so this almost sounds like exactly like how they found his first wife yes Yes. She had a cut just above her eye and a few abrasions to her shoulders and elbows. The only thing the autopsy revealed was a fractured hyoid bone.
0: The hyoid bone.
1: Yes. We know what
0: that means. Yes. So the podcast that we listen to, Crime Junkies, Mm -hmm. they have mentioned several times a fractured hyoid bone could mean strangulation. Yes, it could. Thank you, Crime Junkies. Yes. (laughs) Big shout out. Yeah. But at the end... Of the autopsy,
1: the medical examiner determined that Dorcas had died from acute respiratory distress, though she did not have asthma, bronchitis, or pneumonia. Is that the same thing as being strangled? Acute respiratory distress. But see, they didn't prosecute him for this one.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes.
1: Okay. Yes, I think that they literally just basically determined that it was the same thing as like if somebody died from an asthma
0: attack, even though she never had any history of that. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Yes. Continue. It's Super crappy.
1: So, Dorcas and the Reverend had not even been married a year. Wow. Yeah. By this point, the author notes that nearly everyone in town was afraid of the Reverend, and no one knew who he had insurance taken out on. <laughs> it was
0: the 70s, and you could apparently take insurance out on anybody you wanted to.
1: Yes. So, the insurance companies were pissed. A few had to pay because they had actually been taken out by Dorcas and Abram, her first husband, but the new beneficiary had been changed to the reverend. So he still got the money, even though he was not the one that took out the original. Oh my God. Yes. So crappy. The other insurance companies were ready for a fight though. Not only was the court getting tired of seeing Reverend Willie Maxwell's name come across their desk, but it was also getting extremely hard to pull jury members that hadn't already been drawn or built an opinion about the questionable reverend or knew him somehow like these are small towns so they yeah were- and
0: he's getting a reputation sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, you but three
1: people actually this is his fourth because they still consider abram one of his
0: too okay i lost count okay so- oh his brother yes. okay so-, so there's
1: mary lou there was abram there was his brother and now Dorgas.
0: that's four people yes okay Yes. all
1: right so it's but he wasn't prosecuted for all of these all it's really been is insurance and right like those kind of battles in the court the but only one he was indicted for was mary lou
0: the insurance companies i mean of course they're catching on this isn't just terrible luck i mean yeah people have died within two years they four people have died mm-hmm. okay
1: yes right. continue sorry Okay, so, Tom Radney, this time, took the approach that many insurance companies preyed on African-American insurees. They didn't want to pay out as much as they normally would for a white insuree. Okay. Um, if, if that's what you call them. I couldn't really think of the word, so. Which I'm
0: sure, you know, okay, so it's, it's the South, it's the 70s. Things are still pretty backwards. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Let's continue. So that's really the approach that he took in court. Out of
1: the 131000 that was taken out on Dorcas Anderson, Tom Radney was able to recover 80000 for the reverend. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, so the reverend, between both the insurance taken out by Abram and Dorcas, and then what he took out on Dorcas, it would have been a total of 131000 Okay, gotcha. But Tom Radney didn't get all of that. He got 80000 for the reverend. Because some of those companies are, like, flat refusing refusing to to pay. Yeah. Moving on. Mm -hmm. The next alleged victim of Reverend Willie Maxwell was his nephew, James Hicks. James had worked on the Reverend's pulpwood and crew, but had become nervous to work with his uncle. Wonder why. Wonder why. Yeah. so on valentine's day in 1976 james went missing two days later a woman called to ask the funeral director to send a car out to the same road that dorcas was found on oh my gosh seems to be a theme james had no visible injuries and his car looked as if it had been parked not wrecked the autopsy report showed nothing there was nothing to account for the death of the subject
0: okay so when i read The articles about this book, I honestly thought the reverend, the way I read it, I guess I just wasn't paying that much attention, but I thought he had killed a bunch of his family members at one time. So this, it's the same. I mean, the succession just seems worse. Like he's so blatantly cold-blooded to keep doing these things. And I know, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but the evidence is there. Mm -hmm. It's not just circumstantial. It's the same road. (laughs)
1: It's the same road: it is okay, it is okay, and I also think how crazy
0: is it that there was nothing right to account for the death of James so you know, with medical advances now, like with the time that we're living in now, I, do you think they could have determined that he was murdered the, something had something, something was had suspicious? Him?
1: Yeah yeah, I would hope so, hmm. I mean, with all of the advances, but yeah. I mean, now we'll never know. It's just, it's crazy to me. So later, James's wife said that she knew the Reverend had been behind James's death. She had found out that the Reverend's new wife, which I'll get into in a minute, mm-hmm. had been calling relatives trying to find out what James's social security number was. Well, that's really fishy. Yeah. For those insurance policies, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. Also, with James's death, I really want to mention that this time investigators had had it. They were sick of a reverend. Right. So, they actually found two men that the reverend had spoken with, hoping that they would assist him in killing two of his nephews. Oh, my gosh. In fact, one of the men, I think, had been to jail for something minor before. Uh And so, the reverend approached him and asked him how dirty he was. Like, would he be willing to do another crime? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, unfortunately, even though they knew the Reverend had been behind these these murders, James especially, they couldn't... They can't prosecute for a murder when the victim was not actually
0: so listed they, as a homicide. <laughs> so they just had no cause of death whatsoever. Mm-mm. That is so strange. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, okay. It is mind-blowing. So they couldn't prosecute him because... There's really no, There's evidence no evidence to provide that he is, it was a homicide. Except for the evidence that they have where he, talk, he spoke to that yeah. guy. Yeah. And of course, he was found on the same road. <laughs> yes. <that>. Yes. <laughs> okay, so
1: I mentioned Reverend's new wife. You know, he was getting really good at finding these women. <laughs> but actually, this one had a role earlier in our story. Her name was Ophelia Burns. And in November of 1974 is when she actually married the reverend. This was the same woman who had been indicted in Mary Lou's death. So he
0: had been running around with her for quite some time.
1: This is the one that
0: they thought had... This was the same one that was indicted with him. With his first wife's murder. With his first wife's murder. And he ends up marrying her. Yeah. She's his third wife. Wow. Yes. Tell me about... Ophelia okay so Ophelia the new
1: wife actually had an adopted daughter named Shirley Ann and Shirley Ann was a teenager and was kind of a little bit wild she was sowing her wild oats Mm -hmm. and one day she left she had a job um, at a Hardee's I think like a couple towns away or Mm -hmm. or something but she was not wanting to stay home she wanted to go hang out with her friends so she left and Ophelia tried to stop her. The Reverend supposedly was not home at this time. He came home later. Um, Shirley Ann left the house. Mm-hmm. And when Ophelia didn't hear from her that night, she called the police. And then when the Reverend got home, they went looking for Shirley
0: Ann. So the Reverend wasn't there, and then her daughter went missing? Mm-hmm. Okay. I so, don't like, where this is going? When they
1: finally went to the police department, they had actually already found Shirley Ann. Oh, no. Again on Highway 9. Oh my God. <laughs> it appeared that Shirley Ann had pulled off, the sh- off to the shoulder of the road to change a flat tire. It appeared, emphasis on appeared. You're doing air quotes. Yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that the tire jack had slipped and the full weight of the car fell onto Shirley Ann. Oh my gosh. However, the tire was actually not flat. Oh my gosh. Mm hmm. Shirley Ann's hands were clean. They didn't have any dirt, grease, anything on them. And the lug nuts were actually pinned under her body. So they weren't, it wasn't like they were on the ground next to the car. Yes, it wasn't. It was under her body. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes, okay. So again, another suspicious death. Right. At Shirley Ann's funeral, Shirley Ann's biological sister, I'm going to butcher this. It looks like Lavinia. Lavinia.
0: Lavinia? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Lavinia Lee was baffled at the Reverend's indifference. The Reverend just did not care.
0: But I mean, this was his sixth death. So, and did they find, I mean, he had, had he taken out a policy on Shirley Ann? I believe he was listed as the beneficiary.
1: However, he would not receive that money. <laughs> Get on that in a second. Okay. Luvinia Lee was baffled at the reverend's indifference. She pointed her finger at him right there in the funeral and yelled, you killed my sister and you're going to pay for it. And about that time, a man in a green suit walked up and shot the reverend in the head three times, killing him. Wow. This was in front of about 300 people who were at that funeral.
0: I have, I have goosebumps. I have chill bumps right now. <laughs> yep. That's crazy. Yes.
1: Okay. So the man confessed in the back seat of the cop car that day. Yeah. He was in a room full of witnesses. Yeah. I mean, what do you say? Right. So he, a black man, would later be tried by a jury of white men. Again, The South Mm. and in attendance would be some of the 300 people that watched him murder the Reverend.
0: So everybody knew.
1: Yeah, I mean, they all knew, and everyone knew why he had done it, of Mm -hmm. course, because everybody had been suspicious of the voodoo preacher. Mm -hmm. Everyone was actually just surprised that it hadn't happened sooner. Yeah. The Reverend had been suspected. Mm. Of six suspicious deaths in seven years—that's a
0: lot. That is That's a lot. Yeah. So he was a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, I know, like he was—he was getting money off of every victim. Yeah. So
1: another shock that day. The attorney defending the man who murdered the Reverend was Tom Radney, the Reverend's attorney.
0: Interesting turn okay, of events. Okay. So the same attorney that defended the Reverend first then defended the man who killed him. Yep. So does the book, you said the book does go into a background on Tom Radney. Yes. Okay. okay. It's very interesting. And I just didn't want to get into his story as
1: well. I really hope that you'll read this book. It's excellent. But yeah, it goes into the whole history of Tom Radney as well, who actually had a lot of involvement in politics too. He was a Democrat in the South. Okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. He has a really interesting story too. And he struck up a really good friendship with a Harper Lee. So, so, so when
0: she was researching all yes. of this,
1: yeah, and he would call her, tell her details, uh-huh. stuff like that. So, that was really interesting to me. But, yeah, I think personally, I feel like he knew after a while. I mean, how do you not yeah. know that the Reverend's guilty? Yeah, he may have gotten into it innocently, but then he's like, oh crap. I'm in this and I can't get out. Right. And so when the Reverend was murdered, he defended the man that killed him. Wow. Yeah, super interesting. I actually kind of just went into this, but as promised, I won't go into much of the story involving Tom Radney or Harper Lee. Because we want you to read the book. Yes. But I will say, you know, they did strike up a friendship. Harper Lee actually worked on the Reverend. So that was going to be the title. That would have been the title, which was to become her true crime story, much like In Cold Blood, I would like to say. You right know. like
0: truman capote wrote in cold blood she was going to write the reverend yes mm-hmm. she worked on it y'all for 10 years before she finally
1: let it go and now that her estate is sealed and other than the briefcase full of newspaper clippings and research that she gave back to the radney family no one knows of
0: the work she had written for this story so it's just gone mm-hmm.
1: oh my gosh yeah that is so
0: insane.
1: It is, and one thing I do want to mention, and I kind of like feel a kinship with Harper Lee in this. There are some stories, you know, I I write a little bit, not like fiction or anything, but mm-hmm. like just short stories. But there are some things that I cannot bring myself to write. Mm-hmm. I just, and it doesn't matter how much I kind of work on it in my head or mm-hmm. or even write stuff down there's some t- there's some subjects I cannot bring myself to write I kind of wonder if she wasn't just surrounded by all this research and it was just too much overwhelming after a while
0: and I think about the the fame and the pressure that she like the fame that she received after to kill a mockingbird and the pressure to live up to that yeah standard you know she was under a lot of pressure and i think the the novel that came out after her death go find i think a it was actually
1: right before
0: okay i believe
1: it's ghost At a watchman but okay so casey step goes into that a little bit too there was a lot of controversy with that novel being released right yeah
0: and i honestly
1: i i haven't read it I, I own it. I have not read it either. I'm
0: scared to. I don't, I'm, I'm i feel kind of for, uh, scared to do it. So I kind of want to
1: hear your guys' opinion on this. I own the book, but I have not read it. And I, like you, I'm kind of hesitant Mm -hmm. to, because I wonder, Harper Lee, in her later years, you know, for a long time, her sister, who was an attorney, who was actually a little bit older than her, took care of her estate, estate, Uh really, but then it switched hands to, like, her sister was considerably like she was getting up there in age okay i want to say she was close to 100 like she was yeah she was still a practicing attorney if i'm not mistaken in her 90s oh wow yeah so she she was up there in age and so they let someone else handle the estate it was at that point that ghost settle watchman was released So I kind of wonder, I want to say, and I could be wrong about this. I can't remember if Harper Lee suffered with like dementia or Mm -hmm. something. Either way, she had, she was up there in age. And I do worry, like, was she wanting this release? Right? Did
0: she want it to be released or did she just want to keep it? Because she didn't, she didn't finish this other book and she didn't publish it. So I did find a couple of articles regarding the the book by Casey Sepp, mm-hmm. and it kind of goes into her opinion on why Harper Lee didn't Ooh, finish. Okay, yeah. so I to So the first one is uh, by N- NPR. Uh, Furious Hours tells the tale of Harper Lee and her unfinished work, and this is by Ilana Masad. It was published May 8th, 2019. So if you Google that, you can find that article. The other one that I found was through Vulture. And the title is How Casey Sepp Wrote the True Crime Book, Harper Lee Couldn't. And that has some good information. And it's by, the article was written by Marie Mm -hmm. Kreisman. And that was also published in May of last year. So if you want to learn more regarding the author's opinions on Harper Lee and kind of how she did her research. You could check out those articles. But I, like I said, I haven't read this book, but I absolutely have to read this book now (laughs) that you've told me this story because, wow, Okay, so
1: not only are the events insane, but the fact that it happened as late as the 1970s and it was still going on about insurance and insurance companies and what was allowed and what was not. Yeah, just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I hope that you give it a read. I hope y'all give it a read.
0: And tell us what you think, Yes, we want to hear. Yeah. Okay, y'all, that's all we got. Stay safe, guys.